Hey everybody, welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Well, Abby's off going on a nationwide tour for her new documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. I'll be filling in for the rest of the month, most likely. We might have another episode coming after this one. We're really trying to get it out before October. Not sure if that's going to happen, um, but we're, we're trying to put together an episode about the situation in Hong Kong. While maybe it's not as pressing, it's still an ongoing situation, and we would still very much like to cover that. But just wanted to put that out there. But today on the podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. Uh, we've had Leslie Lee on the podcast before to talk about the current state of Disney and the Unbreakable Trilogy by M. Night Shyamalan. But today I wanted to bring Leslie on to discuss something else that's just come up in the news involving Star Wars, Disney, and George Lucas. We're going to use this subject sort of as a anchor to have the rest of our discussion. But the conversation with Leslie starts somewhere else that was not what we had planned, but I think starts in a pretty interesting place, which is that these corporations like Disney, like Marvel, like all these entertainment corporations have dialed in almost down to a science, how to virtue signal and present this facade about themselves that they are left leaning, that they care about social justice, that they care about people of color and that they care about women's rights. Just as we were recording the podcast, this popped up on my Twitter feed and I didn't mention it to Leslie, but it perfectly dovetails into our discussion. Disney announced uh, Miss Marvel, one of their slated TV shows, will reportedly start filming as early as September 2020. Bisha K. Ali will be the showrunner of the series, which features the popular New Jerseyan inhuman, Kamala Khan, with the power to stretch. She takes on the world one step at a time after Captain Marvel. Now, Marvel Studios is trying to seem really woke here, where they're essentially planning to put a Muslim-American superhero into the MCU, having a Pakistani director cast a Pakistani actress. And they're announcing all of this to get the credit, to get the woke points, um, just as they did with when they announced Ryan Coogler directing Black Panther. Now, as we've seen with the MCU, this is not some kind of leftist ideology that's on display here. They tried to say Captain Marvel was this very woke, sort of feminist, empowering film. But at the same time, they released Captain Marvel. The U.S. Air Force was heavily involved in the promotion. Brie Larson was doing all these military commercials, essentially, with the U.S. military to promote that film. So here you have Pakistanis actually being still bombed on a regular basis by U.S. bombs and drones. Um, Pakistanis literally being murdered by the U.S. government. And Disney is here trying to get woke points. So having said that, we're going to get right into our discussion with Leslie Lee. Leslie Lee is one of the hosts of Struggle Session Podcasts with Jack Allison. I highly recommend people check out that podcast as it's one of the only culture entertainment podcasts that has actually really good politics that's out there. So enjoy my discussion with Leslie Lee. Here we go.
Also, welcome to Media Roots Radio, Leslie. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on again. I really appreciate it. As I've said before, this is my favorite podcast, but I have to admit I have not been listening lately just because I haven't been listening to podcasts at all. But I'm sure you and Abby are doing fine, fine work still. Thank you for your kind words, Leslie. Uh, your podcast is one of my favorites for sure. And I do not, uh, I, I'm the same way. I actually rarely listen to podcasts, so I could completely understand that. Yeah, but because I, I record up. my own, it's like it's like exhausting. Yeah. It's like li- it's almost like listening to other people's is like an extra amount of work sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> on top of it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I switch up. Like I'll go in a phase where I'm just listening to music, a phase where I'm just doing audio books, and then a phase where I just do podcasts. It just depends on what what season it is, totally. what mood you catch me in. Totally, I I like that. I'm I I feel like I'm kind of like that too with ingesting entertainment, like. I, I was just discussing with you um, over DM maybe yesterday. Uh, I've sort of returned back to something that kind of reminds me of a more charming era of the internet when things were edgy, but not politicized and so partisan to such a degree where it's like impossible to you know escape from it. The angry video game nerd uh, YouTube channel has sort of been attracting my attention lately, and not like the older angry video game vi- nerd videos which are like now like 10 some of them are like 15 years old which is pretty yeah, yeah, incredible um i mean he was doing this before youtube in case people don't remember i think they were originally up on like e-bombs world and game trailers or something yeah that was that was before everybody visited the same five websites for exactly. all the content you would go different places for stuff yeah and and he's i mean he's got some great shit up there like i normally don't watch Twitch streams of people playing video games or anything like that. I find it boring, but they have a great series called James and Mike Mondays where they play old, like obscure Nintendo games and dig up all these old things that I just never heard of before. Like they'll just throw in a a random 3DO game and play it all the way through. And I I just find it really like comforting and entertaining. Like that's what, that's the phase I'm in right now. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's nice to escape from, like even all these entertainment channels, you know, on YouTube that talk about, for example, Star Wars, there's so much, you know, red pilled, like sort of like anti SJW, yeah. but just this modern era of politics that is that is just imprinted on it. It's hard to find stuff that's not like that these days. That still has some bite to it. That's still, I don't know. I, I hate yeah. to use the word edgy because it's so passe. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I I know exactly what you're saying. You want something that, you know, is funny and interesting and subversive, but it's not like, you know, crypto fascism, which is, you know, <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of YouTube is that even even stuff that isn't like funny or edgy in any way. Like there will be a video dissecting like why this or that film is bad. Then in the middle, there'll be a random rant about the SJWs. And these are some of the top videos on YouTube. I always get recommended uh, those videos and it's, it's the worst worst thing because even if because I mean that's not my politics at all even if I want something dissecting a film or if I want just like two nerds making fun of a video game I want that without all the you know red pill stuff either and YouTube makes it very hard to get that oh it's it's and there have been plenty of reports saying that 
you know, the, the explanation is that it's done for profit, that that's the stuff that the algorithm boosts the most because it is easily able to generate the most traffic. And that's the general explanation. I, I, ha I get a little bit conspiratorial about why that's being done. Um, but yeah, it's inescapable. I mean, like I, you know, I'll watch one, like, for example, like Bill Burr is someone who sort of straddles this line of he's like really like appreciated and loved by all these like anti-social justice warrior right wingers. But I still find his shit sometimes really funny. Yeah. Know, the non-political stuff. So I find myself sort of in this space of like, damn, if I click on this Bill Burr video, I'm just going to populate, populate my algorithm with all these yeah, like red yeah. pills fucking videos. And, and this, Bill Burr is such a funny example because when you actually listen to his podcast and his show, like he'll make fun of feminists and then say, also say like how like capitalism is bad and how he wants to vote for Bernie. He is very much the ac uh, actual uh, contrarian, and it's kind of uh, we. I used to say, you know, a couple of years ago that if we could just get Bill Burr to like go full socialist, we will win everyone because everybody loves him for one reason or another. I, unfortunately, I think with his last special, he kind of got caught up in the complaining about cancel culture thing, which is not his best stuff. It's not his best material. It's not anybody's best material. It's very passe. But I still do find some value in a lot of value in Billboard. I think he's a really funny guy. He's not, you know, super far right wing. His politics are kind of all over the place uh, sometimes. But I, but if right now, like you said, if you click on a Bill Burr video, the next you know nick is all gonna be like right wing stuff uh is gonna be the next thing that sends you down unfortunately totally and i i hate even mentioning this guy because i don't want to even give him any publicity on this podcast but it's an interesting example of someone who sort of worked the algorithm who kind of was a you know a comedian that was sort of on the radar of people and i'm talking about owen benjamin who yeah. who figured out a way to grift and work that power of that algorithm to just become this like political red pilled guy who's yeah, now the only thing he's not funny at all oh he, no exactly he, and never was that's what i he mean like the, and it's funny because he's like the most boring like sappy comedian like bill burr is like a legitimately edgy guy who still can have some good left-leaning thought like owen benjamin is like the most milk toast unfunny boring guy like i'm shocked that like he's the guy that all his fans would make fun of for being like a cucked sjw because his comedy typically aside from what his uh, you know performative right-wing stuff is just like very milk toast family friendly like nonsense oh exactly and for people who don't know he was sort of a quintessential piano comedian like yeah. he, he was like that one guy God, I forget his name, who was who Mark Marin kind of had this weird rivalry with for a while. That really young guy, um, who kind of came who became famous on the I don't remember his name, uh, but maybe yeah. Bo Burnham. That's him, yes. He's like Bo Burnham, but yeah, you're absolutely right. His fans would generally destroy comedians who do that type type of comedy. Um but yeah, I enough about him. But yeah, I agree with you about Bill Burr. It's it's a weird thing, and it's also weird. Too that there is a lot of stuff out there, and 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 one a good example is stuff that's been in sort of in the rumor mill about Star Wars recently, that is coming out from a lot of these YouTube channels that do have bad politics, and it's it's interesting how they've sort of capitalized on 
the hatred for this the sequel trilogy. So like yeah. you and Jack, you know, you talk about this all the time how the prequels are actually better than the sequel trilogy and people oh, are by a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that a lot of people have sort of capitalized on that same energy and it's become sort of this movement online called the fandom menace where it's gotten wrapped up into this red pilled anti SJW obsession too. And it's, and, and the unfortunate thing for me, Leslie, is they are actually saying a lot of true shit about star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Mixed so, together here, here, with that. So yeah, comment on that. Yeah. So th- like part of the reason why we started the show is that f- people who uh, struggle, I uh, show struggle session is so that people who like, don't like the new star Wars or don't like this or that other thing, like don't feel compelled to listen to right wingers complain about it too. They should be, have the option to hear some left wing wingers say these movies are bad. And it's, it's kind of like, it's, it comes so politicized because, you know, Disney is the master of this, but Sony's done it a little as well. They figure out that when they have a mess of a movie that cost them two hundred dollars, two hundred million dollars to make, the way to try to recruit recoup some of those costs is to politicize it to say the people who don't want you to see this are a bunch of sexist and racist, and if you go see this, what you're doing is actual politics. You're doing good politics by seeing, look, there's a black guy in Star Wars finally. There's a woman in Star Wars finally. Never mind the fact that there's always. Been and like black people and women in Star Wars and like the, the you know, for whatever we're saying about, you know, the reactionary fans now, they didn't hate those old movies. They found a way to like those movies starring women and black actors. And so now when those new movies come out and they get, you know, backlash, which all Star Wars, which is the thing that's been happening our entire lives. People have always been arguing about Star Wars, but it's become like a political thing now. And I think a lot of the blame does lie with Disney and how they promote the movie. And some of the things that, you know, we know the film studios do, which is they'll remove comments from a trailer. They'll be like, this trailer looks stupid. It's not funny. It's bad. But they'll leave up comments that say explicitly sexist or racist stuff to create this idea that this the movie is under siege by the right wing and therefore if you're a good progressive person you will support this movie and fight for uh this movie and anybody who dislikes this movie is by definition like a right wing scumbag yeah i mean it it's really fascinating because clearly it's gone far beyond how it was from like our teen years like when it seemed like what the Google was doing was basically just removing things from search results or YouTube that violated the digital millennium copyright act or whatever they call it. And they still will have a thing. You know, if you ever try to search for like a film or a streaming movie or something like that on Google, you will see results at the bottom. They'll explain that they've removed results because they violate copyright, but they're doing this on so many other different levels too. Like Disney who knows how much sway they actually have over their YouTube comments. I mean, if you run your own YouTube channel, you can delete whatever comments you want, first of all. So it's not like Google or Google or YouTube are granting them any extra power over that. But we also have to realize they probably are granting them extra power in some other capacity as well. 
Yeah, and also, it also, you know, uh, comes down to like the entertainment press or the nerd press, which is kind of the same thing now, where if they'll announce something. They've hired a black actress to play a role that um, us- that was a white woman in the animated version. And you and like five people on Twitter will say something bad about it. But there'll be hundreds of articles written about those five or six tweets. And you want and you wonder where that's coming from and how like how could that not be connected directly, you know, to Disney telling uh reaching out to their context or even like maybe then when you have to reach out at this point, maybe they're like because this has been such a reliable narrative that anytime this you know massive corporation decides to like you know stop excluding black people because they're the ones who kept all the black people and women and now currently keep all uh, the gay characters out of their films when they decide to uh relent and put a black woman uh front and center um it's a reliable narrative to say that oh the right wing is attacking this film now you have to go and see this film like everybody knows how the game is played now and it's almost like clockwork you have the it starts when you announce who you're hiring it sometimes even starts before the hot the hiring process sometimes when they're just posting like who they are willing to cast in a role they'll that will go out in variety and it'll be like a traditionally white role but the advertisement will say but uh you you know a black person or asian person could be up for it and then you know it'll get a little bit of backlash hundreds of articles and then it will come to come down to it they did end up hiring a white person that happened with the netflix witcher series like there was a huge controversy before they cast these roles because everybody in the witcher is right is white because it's a polish um, property a polish game and when they advertised the roles they said oh we're open to you know a diverse casting but then when it came out who they actually cast it was just all white people but netflix had already gotten the uh, credit for being progressive and woke against you know the right wing trolls uh very brave of them to do that that's that's so fascinating and i think this is a really important discussion we're having because if we could just get some of these people who talk about star wars all the time and agree with you and jack about how bad the sequel trilogy is if we could talk to them and just explain to them that these corporations are not legitimately left wing these people who sit on the boards of them are not legitimately left-wing people. Yeah, Ike, Ike Perlmutter is not a left-winger. He's a Trump guy. You're not doing, you're not, you know, helping black people or women by going to see those Marvel movies and making Ike Perlmutter richer. Yeah, and and you remind me of something that I remember happening even before all these movies were accused of being anti-white or, or just only casting you know, or having like Mary Sue's in them, like they constantly say they do now. But previous to that, it seemed like there was sort of a race between Marvel and DC. And I don't even really know if Marvel actually did much of this. Because now, come to think of it, has Marvel actually had any female directors that have directed any of the MCU films? Um, Captain Marvel. They have female director on uh, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel. So they were late Got to the punch there with because DC seemed like they were trying to do more. They had Wonder Woman first. Yeah, they they, de- they did Wonder Woman and 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 purposely hired a, a a female director. They hired a black director for Black Panther, and they made that 
you know they did a a, a you know a lot of press. We wanted to get a lot of press, obviously, for that. Yeah, well, it was Marvel who did Black Panther. That they uh, with uh, Ryan Johnson, which I, I have to say is uh, is a not very good film, and I actually think you know it's too bad that you know, Ryan Coogler, who is an actually good director, had to spend his time pretending that he directed it. Because if people don't know, like with the Marvel movies, so much of it is pre-visualized. It's not something that the director comes up with. It's there before they're hired, and then all the action scenes are shot by the Disney team. That's why all the action scenes and all the films kind of look the same. That's why all the movies kind of look the same. It doesn't matter who the director is. That They have a team, like it's an engine and in a lot of ways the director is just, he's playing they're playing the part of director on the talk show. It's like that's their main job. In fact, there was a, a female director, independent film a female uh, director who wanted to do uh, who was approached about uh, directing the Black Widow picture and she I think we might have talked about this last time I was on and she turned it down because when they you know told her everything about it it she was like yeah it would be really nice to meet scarlett johansson but i actually like directing my own movies i don't want to do just you know show up and pretend to direct something when you already have everything uh laid out that's not what i do so they want the this credit for you know hiring you know, a black director, a female director, but they're not lect- actually letting any, you know, black, vo- authentic black voices or authentic female voices create something out there, right? Like this is all going through a pro- the Disney filter process and everything that comes out is going to be a Disney product saying Disney things. Yeah, there's a, there's a creepiness to what you're describing. It's not just that they're taking away creative control, you know, even in a regular studio environment, there's very few directors that have like the final cut authority. I mean, most directors have their hands tied by a major studio in some way or another. And that's why a lot of movies apparently have turned out very bad. I mean, even the, you know, some of my most beloved older super uh, hero movies, Superman one and two, went through a really crazy process yeah. where the studio essentially fired Richard Donner before he finished filming part two. It, the Superman one is such a mess because it, it really couldn't happen now because those were in a lot of ways still like independent films. It was just uh, this these two guys who bought this family who bought the rights to make Superman movies, bought it away from DC Comics. Now, of course, Super- Superman is owned by Warner Brothers and it's all locked down. But it was this really strange and weird situation where um, like just these t- this family just owned the rights to Superman. Like uh, it's, it's, it, it's unimaginable to think of something like that happening now. And the ambitious nature of like a non-studio entity, you know, they they apparently they raise these funds to shoot a back-to-back tentpole, like basically a first movie and a sequel. I mean, that's like crazy, you know, unthinkable. (laughs) Well, well, the thing was they were only going to pay some of the people once <laughs> oh, hilarious <laughs> smart like you almost gotta respect like the old school con these old school con artists like made made the first two superman the ones we all love and remember <laughs> yeah i mean and, and i mean there's definitely something unsettling to that too because i really like you know superman one and two but it's hard for me 
to like it when I really think about if I ever think about that while I'm watching it, I'm like, damn, you know, this, these this, that was really fucked up what happened in these movies. But there's something unsettling about the Marvel movies that you're tapping into about this. They, they're removing a director's role even more. And there's something that I feel like is not talked about enough with Marvel movies. And it's and I think you hit on something with this pre-visualization thing. There's also this weird pattern in Marvel movies, and you've probably noticed this, where there is a lot of real costume filmed action stunts, even by stuntmen, not just by the actors, like especially Black Panther is a perfect example, where they replace it entirely with CGI and seemingly, in some cases, for no reason. And it's actually confusing. Why would they replace like all that final fight scene in Black Panther with CGI when there's actual photography of the actors doing pretty much a lot of the same movements. Um, uh, why would they replace so much of Spider-Man's on-set photography with CGI? It actually looks better to me when I'm watching some of the B-rolls. So there's this weird unsettling, almost like play acting. Are they letting these actors play act for their own Whoa. amusement? So they're, they're just looking the other way and, and they don't <laughs> care that they've been entirely replaced with CGI in the movie? Well, I think that's part of it. The main reason... <clears throat> so there's a lot of kind of forces at play is like why it's happening. Like the main thing why they like CGI so much is they can change it until the very last minute. They don't have to call the actor back. They don't have to talk to anybody important. They don't have to pay anybody for reshoots. They just, you know, can change it in the computer until the week of release. They can keep adding notes uh, forever fix this change that turn this that way that's the main reason about it and all but also the long-term goal i think most people are kind of realizing this is to replace actors like they want to be able to like you, we've already seen it like thanos that character was an entirely cgi character the main vil pro antagonist in the highest grossing film of all time well what if they can do, replace all all the actors, all the actual people from it, and you just have, you know, voice actors or people who come on set and play act, um, but you don't have to pay those people, you know, $20 million a picture, and you don't have to wait for their schedule uh, to clear up before you can do it. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'm like... Like even like the seats, their subtle ways they do it's like even like the suits that they wear, they're often CGI it like for no reason, like which is such a weird thing, which is such a weird thing. Let's pause for a second and talk about Endgame because I just realized while you were talking that Infinity War Part One or whatever it's called, the first the Avengers Infinity War, which is which was part one of a two part movie series or you know whatever. That movie seems like they pre-visualized that out for maybe even like a decade in advance. Like this was something they had been working towards. But then there's clear signs that Endgame has all these indicators that they changed and tweaked all the shit like literally at the last in the last like few months of post-production. The costume CGI stuff. Now there's a scene in the trailer. Everybody was like, oh, they're hiding what's really going on here where it shows them all walking towards the time device in Endgame. Now they later used in the, the final movie, these like Ant-Man costumes that were done in CGI that look actually really great. They look almost photorealistic. But if you look at the B roll footage for the, what they filmed during that, they're all wearing random weird ass, different costumes. Like 
Iron Man's wearing his own suit. They're all wearing their own costumes, which makes me think that they actually changed something in the story last minute. Like they, yeah, yeah, they changed which is crazy. A lot of stuff. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's crazy. They plan it for so long, but they still like they improv on set. They actually like improv on set, like some of the interactions and stuff between the characters, which you would think with this, you know, super dominant um, global hege- hegemonic Disney on top of everything, there wouldn't be a ton of improv on set, especially since the movies aren't really about people. They're just about action and stuff like that. But they know that they can film all that improv and put whatever in because they're not going to stop making the movie until the last minute. So that's why they allow the actors to play and have fun on set and do improv because they can just change everything uh up to you know whatever the suits say um is supposed to be until the very last minute like captain marvel there was a lot of talk about how like she was like her role in the film was drastically increased um and like all the other actors were like really pissed off actually about it yeah uh, because because they made her a much bigger part of uh everything and that decision was made i think before they even captain marvel came out which was which means it was before captain marvel was even finished they were still figuring out what they were doing with captain marvel while they were shoving her uh, into this other movie and making her like the most powerful of all of them did you remember the strangeness? Did you actually watch Captain Marvel? Yes, I did. Yeah. So did you notice the oddness of the n- non-connectivity between the the uh, end credit scene of Captain Marvel and Endgame? Yeah, yeah. It's, what, it, what was that? <laughs> it it's very weird like they like they shot it two ways and showed both ways <laughs> in, in each of the different uh, movies. It's this is getting really into deep nerd uh, stuff. I'm not. You're, I know your listeners used to serious political stuff, but the problem with like Cap, how P- Captain Marvel was presented and what they ended up her being is like she's so powerful that she could have solved all these problems like three movies ago. Like she can single handedly take out everyone and that and we know that because of the end scene in the uh, Captain Marvel film where um, this character called Ronan the Destroyer brings a whole fleet of ships and then she murders like a hundred thousand aliens like without blinking an eye and like that oh, felt like a tact of uh, ending that was very much tacked on because that character just comes out of nowhere and then she destroys them and then so what and so then when endgame comes around they decide oh she has the same power levels too well then what are all these movies about if all she can do is snap her fingers and like crush any of the opposition like it didn't really make any sense that's why these movies don't really feel like movies that have like coherent narrative and characters with clear motivations and overall themes it's just like this you know a bunch of lasers trying to blow up a a different laser and that's kind of how all these movies end i mean i don't want to talk about marvel for too long because i want to move on to some more star wars talk with you (laughs) and other subjects but I, i were you excited about anything on the new slate I mean, it didn't like She-Hulk. 
it just seems like it'd be really weird. So I was kind of intrigued by that. But what's like, why did it seem so bland? Like, what was what was the deal with that slate? Because I mean, because it's it's a bizarre thing. It's like there shouldn't be a slate of thirty <laughs> Marvel things coming out. I know you. We, we're about the same age when we were kids. Like getting one or two superhero movies a year that was cool, and that was ultimately kind of enough, especially when it's all from one studio with one style making one thing over and over again, just changing out the costumes. It was it was so much better when there were much less of this content out there, when they had smaller budgets, when they were trying weirder, different stuff. Um, I, re- I remember like The Crow, like that. that's a movie that could never happen like today because it was it was a small very small comic book character and but they had but the director had a really clear vision of creating a film a world a film world like any other movie as opposed to it being a part of this machine that just keeps spitting out the same looking same feeling same sounding same 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 thing just with different characters moving around so i i can't get excited for a slate I can't get excited for a slate. A slate is something that you show your investors, not fans, not audiences. But we have moved that to the audience. And now the audience are like the investors and the net and the advertisers now. That's where we're at now. We're at the same table uh, with them where we're supposed to get excited about all the properties that are coming up instead of the stories that we're going to see and the new worlds that we're going to see and the imagination that we're going to see on screen. We don't get that anymore. We just get new products. Yeah, it's such a great point because even though Disney is, I think, a pretty terrible corporation, they used to be good at, you know, they had a whole department that was called the Imagineering Department. Yeah. That was, I mean, they probably still do, and they call it that. But that, but like, they used to be really good at showing these upcoming properties of theirs and making them seem really exciting. If you watch some of the original pitches for Lion King, even though that's totally stolen off of a Japanese animator. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, then, then you'll see what I'm talking about. Like, they do a really good job of. I mean, I remembered when Disney seemed like you know they still had some magic in them. They're they've lost all that. Um, and and that yeah, you're exactly right about this pitching. It, it seems like an investor pitch. It kind of reminds me of like when defense companies advertise, you know, on TV commercials. Like, who are they advertising to? You know, uh, presumably me and anybody watching TV, which is strange because we're not the ones buying Raytheon products. Um, but there was this interesting thing in the news recently uh, that's not shouldn't be surprising to anybody. But I guess we learned more interesting details on exactly how this yes. took place, where George Lucas um, felt extremely betrayed um, by the nature of how the Disney Lucasfilm deal went down in 2012. And uh, this was recently revealed, I guess, in a, 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 a promo copy that's going around to the media of Bob Iger's book, um, where he's describing his own story about how this, this Disney Lucasfilm deal went down. And, you know, I mean, we, sh- we, got, a, we got enough hints 
that George Lucas wasn't pleased, he called Disney white slavers in a Charlie yes. Rose interview. <laughs> he quickly, of course, retracted it and apologized. But I mean, that was a pretty wild thing to say on a TV interview. I mean, I've, I and I don't know exactly when the timing of this was, but perhaps um, this meeting that Bob Iger is talking about happened before he said that. Um, or, you know, I don't know. So, like, what was your reaction to that that uh, book leak from Bob Iger? Well, it says a lot of stuff that, you know, if we didn't know, we could already pretty much guess just by watching the films. Because, you know, it, jo- every time George was trying to do a Star Wars, he was trying to do something new, show something new, whether that's, you know, in front, what we're seeing, that's the a new world, a new planet, an ice planet, a desert planet, a lava planet. In the, in the, that's what we the the fans see, but there are also the behind the scenes, new technology, new this, new that, new ways of making films and making these you know fantasies become reality. He all every single time he went out, he wanted to do something new. He wanted to do something that you had never seen before, and I think that's been lost. Like you're supposed to. Take the time to leave your home, drive to the movie theater, pay for that overpriced popcorn and sit down and watch this movie because you're going to see something that you've never seen before. People forget that George Lucas is an old school, you know, new Hollywood director, one of the youngest and possibly the one who killed new Hollywood. But that was their time when all these young, hungry directors were given a ton of money by the studios to make new worlds and put them on screen screen to show people things that they didn't know about that they didn't see lives they didn't see and george you know <clears throat> coming from a science sci-fi fantasy background decided to create this you know epic you know space samurai tale and he every time he made one of these movies he was concerned with showing something new and up to the prequels too exact same thing new stuff on every film new technology behind the scenes new 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 why even bother if you're not showing people something they've never seen before and then when you get to the sequels it's showing us all the stuff that George already did, basically. Nothing new. A desert planet. We already had a desert planet. We uh, No new, like, mind-blowing technology. The same technology that you can see in the Captain America film. Nothing new or mind-blowing or different or interesting. And you just watching the films, you know uh, that... That is how George would feel. And in the book, Bob Iger tells us that that's exactly how he feel. He watched uh, uh, the Force Awakens sequel and it was just a bunch of stuff that he had already done. And he felt, you know, greatly disappointed by that, because what's the point of making a Star Wars movie if you're not doing giving people something new to look at? If you're just being, you know, recursive, if you're just repeating what's already happened, like it's not that's not the type of director creator uh he is and of course and of course i'm sure he thought when he sold this to disney he was going to be able to see something new and exciting and this is the thing about george george was not like super like controlling of star wars itself like there's hundreds of novels and stories written uh in the star wars canon um while under george's watch and he read all of them 
and he he read all of them. All these different science sci-fi writers were creating within Star Wars new stuff, new ideas, and George would sometimes incorporate that into what he was making. He liked seeing other people's interpretations of it. So for him to be disappointed in you know the Disney version after he's you know allowed hundreds of other people and approved of hundreds of other people working on it says a lot. He's not just a bitter guy who doesn't like other people playing with his baby. It's the exact opposite, actually. He wants people to play with his baby. He wants people to do something new and interesting that he didn't think of. And the new Star Wars trilogy is definitely, definitely not doing any of that. It's so interesting for me personally because I was never personally a fan of the prequels in in a general sense. Like I, I appreciated them for the like the the special effects work, the new the newness of some of the ideas, the the ex- like they're like they're arguably experimental movies, even if you don't you know think that they're particularly well written or well acted. But I think that it's it's interesting for me because now I'm hungry to go back and watch the prequels and see stuff that was sort of re- presented in that movie. I mean, even like yeah. for example, Revenge of the Sith. Um, I remember a scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi falls down this giant, like, um, almost like this weird, in this weird water planet kind of thing where there's all these, like, caves, and he's riding, like, a giant lizard while fighting General Grievous where he's on this, like, weird gear car thing. Like, and there's, like, a chase sequence. It's, like, it's, like, that's crazy weird stuff to put on a, a big screen and spend all this, you know, special effects money on. So I can appreciate that. And I'm hungry to see stuff like that and these big tentpole movies. That's the kind of shit I want to see. And what's so sad here is if you read between the lines of a lot of what Bob Iger is saying, there's some sinisterness. There's some typical corporate sinister shenanigans going on here because it says from The Hollywood Reporter that Bob Iger explains that Disney purchased Lucas's outlines for three new movies when it made a deal to acquire Lucasfilm in 2012, although the purchase was in part made out of a sense of obligation, it suggested we decided we needed to buy them, Bob Iger said, though we made clear in the purchase agreement that we would not be contractually obligated to adhere to the plot lines he'd laid out. And then apparently when J.J. Abrams and Michael Arndt, um, I guess who was originally the screenplay writer, maybe he did write the the final screenplay, uh, met with George Lucas and Kathleen Kennedy um, to discuss the future of these where these this new trilogy was going to go. Uh, Bob Iger says in his book, George immediately got upset as they began to describe the plot, and it dawned on him that we weren't using one of the stories he submitted during the negotiations. George knew we weren't contractually bound to anything, but he thought that our buying the story treatments was a tacit promise that we'd follow them, and he was disappointed that his story was being discarded. Um, that's really interesting because. To, I, if you read between the lines a little bit there, doesn't that kind of seem like Disney did it to fool him? <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> you would think George would have been a little more savvy as a businessman and known that that, you know, if he's not going to retain any creative control, then, you know, then that's not, the, you know, a promise. It's not a handshake is not a, you know, a deal. You need to get this stuff on paper. But still, it seems like they fooled him to me. I mean, um, and that's that's really weird if that's what they did. And there's also another layered, and I'm just going to throw out this rumor here because this is something that I've been hearing a lot from sort of the, some of these YouTube channels I was referring to earlier. Um, and they actually seem to have good sources 
because some of this was already sort of being leaked from them. So this sort of confirmed some of what they've been saying. But one of the other leaks that came out recently was that apparently part of the reason why Galaxy's Edge is mysteriously lacking in original Star Wars characters is because somehow George Lucas actually retained some kind of licensing agreement with Disney with his original characters. And that could also be an explanation for why there's been so much of a lack of them in the new the new trilogy as well. And I'm I'm wondering. I just wanted to throw that out there to you if you've heard that because that is kind of interesting. That why would Galaxy's Edge not have R two D two or C three PO walking around? I mean, that seems like a no brainer, right? Like that that would you know they could that, that why wouldn't they have that? That's kind of raises some questions. Yeah, that's weird. I'm not sure if it's contractual or if it's like I'm used to talking about, you know, when it comes to characters coming from one place to another, talking about Vince McMahon and what he does when he buys characters. And what he does is he changes everything about them because everything he wants to sell, even if it costs him money, even if it costs him money, he only wants to sell people and promote things that he created in the house so i don't know if that's you know if it's a disney if that's you know it wouldn't surprise me if disney had a similar mindset because they do seem very focused on like for example like when you go in the store and see like han solo and lando it's not like necessarily harrison ford and billy d williams it's you it's you know the new the young han solo and the young lando oh wow interesting yeah so they are you know they are trying to kind of replace this with i maybe there's a monetary reason a licensing reason or it's just you know general uh practice uh for them but generally speaking um corporations like to own own everything they're selling and maybe they don't think um maybe they don't think that the older characters are something that they can really you know lay claim to and that's why you don't see me i mean what like why is bba in uh, in it at all like why why did they replace r2d2 with this new robot and now they're in every movie they're creating these new robots when they had two perfectly fine uh droids before is it necessarily a licensing thing is it about the uh is there a decimal point that goes off if they use the, these characters in this way or that way i don't know but i i do tend to think that like they would try to do it regardless of the money they would try to make their own little robot that they own and control entirely yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it could just be that they're that greedy that they were like, well, why not just get rid of these older legacy characters and replace them with new ones that people will will love. But there does seem to be like a risking. It's kind of a gamble in a way because they could also create a fan backlash, which it seems like they're doing in a lot of different ways. You know, Last Jedi, probably the most extreme example yes but i've i i don't know how how are they going to stick the landing now with the third you know the last the final movie in the skywalker trilogy i mean and i'm kind of worried they might even do a lot of cgi carrie fisher because i don't understand what, how else are they going to put her in the movie yeah I'm, I'm sure they filmed a lot of extra stuff with her i hope they don't try cgi because she didn't really like being cgi'd and rolled one she she kind of took offense because they said she she couldn't do the um, motion capture for it um so it was just one in more indignity uh she had to undergo being told she was too old to play herself in cgi um 
I don't, I don't know. Like, so it's important to state that, like, so the Star Wars films are like a singular up from one through six are a singular vision from one weird guy talking about all the things he loved as a child and going from there. Right. It's just one guy behind it. This trilogy is and it's all characters based on people he know ideas he's had things he's loved he loves the loves all those characters knew what their stories were knew where they came from where they're going how they got there who their parents were and their stories as well knew all of that written on his heart and he shared that with the world who is that person in the new trilogy that this is all coming from? That person does not exist. J.J. Abrams, you know, wrote and directed the first one. He was mostly cribbing off of what George Lucas already did. And then J.J. Abrams goes away and this Ryan Johnson guy comes, directs the second one, writes the script without knowing where the story is supposed to go for the third one at all. Had no idea. Wrote the script how he felt. He just did what he wanted to do in the moment with that film with no eye towards the next one killed off the main villain um said that this big secret um that jj had set up about who ray's parents were was not a secret did all this like really bizarre weird stuff that didn't feel didn't feel very star warsy at all that's why a lot of people who say they like the last jedi uh, are people who don't like star wars at all because it takes kind of a sneering view of what came before star wars now it's fine to dislike star wars but maybe like don't make a star wars movie maybe that's not the guy who should be directing the middle movie in the trilogy of Star Wars especially and so now the this third one's coming out and JJ's back and JJ and Ryan they don't like each other that's the behind the scenes thing and it seems kind of obvious um with what you know Ryan did with some of JJ's characters and the stories that JJ um has set up and now JJ has to kind of Pretend that last movie just didn't exist because inst- now they're bringing back uh, the Emperor to be the big villain that Snoke was supposed to be. They're redoing the Ray's story. They're saying that, oh, no, when Kylo said that he was lying, they're doing all this other stuff to basically pretend like that last movie didn't exist and then rushing to the end. Now, like... I. There, like we were, we just watched Return of the Sith on my show, and we talked about how when you get to that third film, and it's just, it just comes down to Anakin and Obi Wan in that great and that epic fight scene, that fantastic fight scene, that is you know the culmination of 30 years of these films of these stories of of these myths coming down to this one fight and you know where Anakin stands and why he feels this way who he is and who he becomes you know who Anakin is why he's feel this way why he's fighting who he is and who he later becomes in um the original trilogy who are any of the characters in this third film I don't know what Poe Dameron is wants or what he's fighting for except you know he's a good guy and he's fighting the bad guys or finn or ray for that matter it's so unclear like what the stakes are who these people are we don't even know what the stakes are because 
they blew like like you would get the impression that there's only like a hundred people left in the entire galaxy at the end of the last Jedi. Less than that, possibly. Like there's only like the resistance, they all fit on one ship, and then all the bad guys, their main ship got destroyed. So how many people are left fighting for the fate of the galaxy? It's like they could all fit in one room. It's it's completely lost the scale and the scope of what this war, this Star War is supposed to be about and then all the individual stories and the characters none of them really like have any make any sense they just don't have the weight to them that they should after three films after you make people sit through four plus hours of something there should be a weight to it there should be a meaning to it there should be some kind of impending payoff instead of just like you know this confusion is it's a really interesting thing because it's one way where disney kind of just like said whatever let ryan johnson do whatever he wants with it which is normally what you do want a studio to tell a director right totally. but it's not, it doesn't work when it's the middle part of a trilogy of a franchise that's been going on for all this time you this is maybe where you do want the studio to step in and say you know what maybe don't kill off the made bad guy while you explaining who it is maybe don't kill off luke skywalker without letting him even do anything cool or have a cool fight because people have been waiting 30 years for him to come back yeah it's so weird i mean talk about having no weight to it to kill off the main character luke skywalker in such a weird anticlimactic way is just utterly insane to me i mean i can't yeah it's like at least jj abrams you know say what you want about the the weird rushed way of that they set up han solo's death um in force awakens but at least you felt it somewhat yeah, at least at least you felt it, and at least you know that that's the thing Harrison Ford wanted most in the world for this character yeah. to finally die. So at least, it, yeah, it was rushed. It wasn't that great, but at least there was an honest, honest try there instead of just just weirdo shit that uh, Ryan Johnson was on. Yeah, and I guess let's let's finish up the the Star Wars conversation by talking a little bit about what. George Lucas's outlines were that Disney obviously I mean I I'm I don't think it's speculation to suggest that they bought these from him so that they could just keep them locked in a vault forever yeah they don't want anybody yeah. to see them but what were these I mean I remember hearing something about a bunch of Luke Skywalker clones being made into some kind of army by the Empire or something I see I don't I don't I only heard there's only a little bit that really came out and it was that George, uh, George's main idea. And I think this was leaked to try to make, to try to make the new ones look good and make George look bad. The leak was that it was about the, um, microbiotic, um, world where, um, he, he talks about this, like, so the midi, the wills were going to be these microbiotic creatures 
that are the ones who actually control the force and feed off the force and use it. And that was a, but that's just one part of it that we don't know, like who the characters were going to be, where they're going to be at, how far it was going to take place in the future. We just know this one weird thing uh, that George was uh, into, but I would be, I would love to see what he was going to do and what he was going to come up with and how he was going to tell the, tell the story. But I'm, I'm, I, I bet I would bet that some point they get released as like, you know, an alternative take on, you know, episode seven, eight and nine, um, the George Lucas versions of ep- episode seven, eight and nine, because that, that hap- that's been happening lately. Like the the um, Fox like released like the one of the earlier scripts of Alien Three uh, done by William Gibson. They released it as a book, and they have a full cast audio book of it too. So these oh, wow. companies are kind of kind of opening up to because they know that there's fan they can make money off of this sort of thing. So if the fans demand it and like want it and want it to be you know released as some, I'm sure as like a text or maybe even a, like an audio drama. I could see uh, it coming out in some form or fashion, a comic book, perhaps. That makes me sort of hopeful. I guess the last thing I'll say about all these these spinoffs to Star Wars and, and the Disney properties is, I mean, you could easily make the argument that J.J. Abrams, not that he just didn't come up with any fresh ideas, but literally all the things in that film, Force Awakens, could have easily been pulled from different various books released in the extended star wars universe like i mean i don't know if there's a character literally named ben solo but i know already that like ken kylo ren is largely a composite of like characters that were had many appearances in the extended universe um and it's so how do they even get away with that i mean like just you know those ideas like are those maybe they maybe those authors don't retain any copyright over their Oh, I'm sure they don't. I'm sure they have no, no ownership of it. And like, yeah, there is, um, uh, there's Jason Solo in the EU, who is the son of Luke and Leia, who turns to the dark side. But I, I it's as, as, but you, it's a journey, right? It's a journey. It's a story. It's a thing you follow. It's not something that you're told in flashback in the second film where like he has a bad dream and then Luke tries to kill him. Maybe it's it, like the EU. It, that's why I love about the EU and all those books is because, and what I've realized for me, for me, the real star Wars sequels are those books, you know, the Timothy Zahn books where they tell you what happens, you know, about, you know, 10 years after return of the Jedi. And that's the thing. That's some of the stuff I love the most about star Wars, you know, or the, the books, the games, all this other stuff is the thing that's most interesting to me. And so for me, like these new movies, they're not real. They don't count. Star Wars ended when George Lucas sold it. He was the guy who created all of this, right? Like, you know, Disney is so big on copyright and ownership, but only for, you know, corporations, not people, not creators. You know, I believe that, you know, George Lucas, when he sold Star Wars, that was it. It's done. It's finished. And we can move on from there. Everything before that counts. Everything after it is just weird fan fiction. It's so strange to say that because there is so much fan, quote unquote, fan fiction out there that was sort of given the official stamp of of George Lucas that is superior 
than the officially yeah. <laughs> owned licensed Star Wars property as it stands now. And just so that people know, go to Galaxy's Edge and you will not see any original Star Wars properties. They don't even have Chewbacca walking around in a costume there. I mean, that's that's yeah. strange. It's just it's oh, it's really funny. Bring this back to politics for your listeners who might be tired of this nerd stuff. Um, when you go to Galaxy Edge, the only characters you see are the stormtroopers, the yes. things that everybody calls space Nazis. They're actually not space Nazis. They're space Americans. That's why, because George is on our side uh, politically. They're sp- they're supposed to be space Americans, but the all like you have they like they'll go around and like demand to see your papers and stuff like that. Like that's the interaction you get. Wow. Well, I guess let's move on to the idea of Disney has eaten up all of these properties and they're just going to continue to grow and grow until I guess they, they own everything. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they eventually own the entire DC universe at some point. There are properties out there that are filled with rich ideas that aren't under copyright. And I'm not sure if I fully understand this, but you've been a proponent of, you know, the idea that people should be adapting, but that more people should be adapting or using material from H.P. Lovecraft, not just because it's awesome, but also because it's in the public domain. Yeah, so, well, the reason why we even probably know H.P. Lovecraft's name is because something weird happened with his copyright and no one is sure who owns it. So that means that when you go to any bookstore, you'll see a bunch of different reprints by different publishers. If you go to Books A Million Now, I just saw this, you can go there, pick up a massive volume of every single thing he's written for 10 bucks. For 10 bucks, and this is a really excellent writer really um famous writer and that's why i think part of why he's been so influential in our culture is because anybody can write a story using the characters anybody can make a movie using hp lovecraft stuff you don't have to pay anybody off you don't have to ask permission you just make your own stuff using this world or these ideas and the ideas are so malleable that you don't really have to directly adapt. You don't have to use the same characters or the same names or same everything. You can change it up and make it your own thing. And you don't have to worry about getting sued by his great, great grandson because your thing has a bears a certain similarity to it. And it's been awesome for him. Like it's if that happened with Star Wars, it would be so great for Star Wars because anybody can make their own Star Wars. Anybody could take these characters and these ideas and the lightsabers and do their own thing with them without paying Disney a bunch of money or asking for permission. It would be so much more interesting and fun. And then, you know, Disney, instead of Disney trying uh, just regurgitating Star Wars to us, they'd be trying to look for the next guy who's going to the guy who's going to make the next Star Wars and give him a bunch of money to create something new and big and bold um, with it. And, and I just, it, the public domain thing is just one, is one of the worst things Disney's has done because they've basically made copyright last forever now. Um, and so we have so few things. Like, for example, Spider-Man was supposed to enter the public domain this year. Wow. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because, you know, Disney kind of got screwed over with the rights to Spider-Man. Sony um, uh, took back the rights. They loaned it to him for a little bit and then took it back. 
And so, like, anybody is supposed to be able to write, like, their own Spider-Man story. Superman, Batman, all those characters that we love, you're supposed to be able to create your own thing without worrying about DMCA takedown notice. And it's it's really, like, bad that that's not. Because, first of all, you what we what happens is a lot of these characters stick around for much longer than they should right like and these characters are created in a specific time a specific place with specific you know politics right like and when we're still dealing with characters created with the politics of the 1940s that's not i don't really think that's a healthy thing necessarily a healthy thing for society that these characters don't get swapped out don't get you know pushback we don't do any it's, it's actually weirdly anti-capitalist right like not not in the good way in the in the way that like these characters are forever protected by these uh corporations and they're not you know subject really to market forces they're gonna make a spider-man movie whether people see it or not they're gonna keep that character at the forefront that character is gonna be everywhere even if people get tired of him you don't you're not allowed to forget about spider-man <laughs> or it, it, I'm, I'm a lot of people love spider-man but i'm sure there's lesser characters like guardians of the galaxy we're gonna see them for the next 20 years even after the actors that we liked in that role are done with it we're gonna keep again that shoved down our throat even though those characters are and have always been like fairly weak right but those rights disney will keep owning those rights soon so they'll keep selling them to us and the people who actually created them um all die in poverty for the most part and you're gonna have to inform me on this because i've i've generally heard this and i've heard it probably for as long as i've heard of hp lovecraft is that apparently he's a racist yes I, I I guess go into how he's actually racist because I don't I, I don't know what he said or what statements he's made or even if there's stuff in his actual horror novels that are racist um, and and why how you're able to separate uh, the his, you know those views from his actual work so I, I just want you to go into that and and what that's all about and if that means we should can you know cancel him yeah. As a as someone to check out, yeah. So H.P. Lovecraft was a virulent racist. He was like, even for his time, he was a virulent racist. Like he was, he was just a super racist uh, guy for much of his his life. In a, you know, he wasn't like a member of the clan. He just had really deeply racist views. But he also like here's the weird thing. Here's the kind of comforting thing about his racism to me cuz he also hated like other white people, white people that he thought were lesser than him. He was an aristocrat. He was very much believed in like blue blood and he thought that like whites in America for the most part were racially degenerate as well. So his hatred was, you know, egalitarian in a certain uh, uh sense. And it does show up in the in the work there's some there's a couple of stories that like where the racism is is you know almost central to the story and you know kind of the point and but there's and there's a lot of stories where there just be an off-handed remark or n-word here or there but like you know some people will try to argue that racism is central to his overall and his 
concept of horror, which I think is completely ridiculous because, you know, if if Lovecraft is if racism is is essential to Lovecraft and racism is essential to Stephen King, to Clive Barker and basically every horror writer and every horror property that we've ever seen since H.P. Lovecraft because he's so influential. What's really which Lovecraft really gets at what he's deeply afraid of every single thing, everything you can think of. He is deeply disgusted and afraid <laughs> of. And that's because he believes that the fundamental truth of the world, the fundamental mechanism of the world is one that's hostile to life, hostile to humanity, hostile to sanity. And you know what the fundamental thing driving life is? Capitalism. Capitalism. By the end of his life, Lovecraft was a sort of socialist. And he actually went back on some of his more noxious racist views. He wrote a lot of stuff and semantic stuff. His wife was half Jewish and she would, you know, bop him on the head when he would say something anti-Semitic. So he was a complicated deeply weird man but there's so, he was definitely getting at something that was true and he was anti explicitly anti-capitalist and you can tell that in the writing basically his you know idea that you know humanity is you know basically being grinded up in these the gears of this great machine which has no con uh which doesn't even think of us, you know, doesn't care about us. And anytime we're, you know, beheld by this great machine, we're driven mad. You know, this is what Lovecraft is. That's why as a socialist, I love his writing. I think there's so much that socialists can get out of him. Even with the racism, you, you, you got to compartmentalize it like you would any writer of the time. Now he's more racist than other writers, but like other writers were racist too. And, still are to this day there's racism in everything you can't escape racism <laughs> in america I, I don't know who told you you could so i if i can compartmentalize the racism that i can see in every other white writer um american writer i think i can do it for hp lovecraft as well and i really want to say you you do not get any points with me as a black person for saying that hp lovecraft is racist i know it's obvious like that's not question right bravo you figured out that a guy who named his cat the n-word is a racist bravo congrats to you now so what are you going to do with that information like i'm still going to read lovecraft and appreciate him on a level of of, of you know this ant this you know really weird well-written creative dark scary anti-capitalist horror and i'm gonna be good right like i i can separate the two i can appreciate the good stuff and you know put the other stuff to the side well i think i mean you present a a, a much more nuanced argument that's generally presented at least on Twitter or online. Yeah, um, but people are like a lot of his defenders. They do him a disservice by trying to say either he racist. wasn't racist or he was racist for the he was just racist for the time. Yeah, he actually was more racist yeah. than for the time. And that's fine. Like, that's fine. He's dead. 
He's dead. Like when you buy HP Lovecraft, as we already said, he doesn't make any money. His descendants don't make any money. It's fine. You're not, you know, putting money into the pocket of a virulent living races now. You're just buying, you know, these great timeless stories that have been so influential to all of horror. So your argument is is much more nuanced than what I usually see. And I like the point you brought up about is his racism, or in this case, virulent racism, even for the time, central to the, his work? It's in H.P. Lovecraft's case, it's not. And it's I'm wondering, not. I'm wondering if that standard, you know, that's the standard. I think that's more, perhaps more wise to apply to different scenarios. And arguably, I guess if we're looking at maybe a different paradigm. Um, you know, was Woody Allen's, you know, sexual predatory behavior sort of central to his work and, and you can almost make the argument that in some in some cases it kind of is um there yeah. it, so it's like you know i mean i think there's different situations um that you know you should you could you could judge us on and i just want to throw this completely out of left field but i want to get back to talking about lovecraft after this but one that i kind of grapple with myself and i used to not be able to see this argument at all when i was younger i guess is J.R.R. tolkien in today's era, can his work fly in terms of this idea that it might be a secret, you know, white supremacist polemic? <laughs> can you even get away with, I mean, could you even get away with doing an, an actual Lord of the Rings adaptation now with all white actors? I, I don't think you could. I mean, I mean, not yeah. I mean, actually, they only used people of color for the bad guys in the movies. Yeah. Um, Marawis yeah, so- and stuff. So. Yeah, what, I mean, what do you think about Tolkien? Can is is this potential white supremacy central to his work? I want to hear your opinion on that. So I I, I really do think like I so I I want to say first off, I'm not canceling Tolkien. If you like Tolkien, you're fine. I do <laughs> find the work extremely like white supremacist, and what re- really like brought it home for me was the video games that are just coming out like the new modern video games where you are playing a ranger who is of course you know a white man who looks like aragorn and you're fighting all these orcs and you're killing all these orcs slaughtering all these orcs and the men and the what and the men are building walls to stop the orcs from coming and you like you are controlled mind controlling the orcs but the thing is part of the mechanics of the game is they wanted to give each orc its own personality so you realize the orcs maybe for the first time are just people right they're not just monsters they're people they like have little quirks and they tell jokes to each other and they have a society and a culture and it's just you as this white man on the wall trying to keep them all out and it's really hard not to look at this and say it's like the most racist thing you've ever seen it's still a fun game but the politics of it aren't great and i think i I think it's just uh, it is definitely a product of its time and when you bring it forward like the video game the sec uh the video game tries to have like there's you know a black guy who's like not your friend but the other like the other male guy that you kind of uh, fight with to try to make, and you have, there's more whip uh, female leaders, but I think Tolkien had that in his books too. He had a lot of female warriors, but it, it's just that, that central concept that there's, you know, this mass of mud people, literal mud people. Oh yeah. I was who, just thinking who, that the other day, dude, that's hilarious. 
Yeah. Just literal mud people who you have to keep out of (laughs) the human areas or everything goes to hell. And it's just like, yes, it's racist, but there's some you can still get enjoyment out of it you can still appreciate it on a, a high on a fancy level while the point the important thing is to like be cognizant of this stuff and to recognize this stuff and when it pops up in something that might not be as valuable and timeless as a token uh to call it out and say hey your new shitty thing is doing the same thing that tolkien did 40 50 years ago what's up with that (laughs) great I, i love your take on that I mean, it, it's it's bothersome for me because I I have to admit, like the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy is kind of like my Star Wars. That's the one that really resonated with me when I was younger, and I still watch it and still really enjoy it. And it sort of makes me question if if Peter Jackson was just it, you know maybe I'm maybe I'm giving him a pass by saying he's from New Zealand and they have a different culture there and they're not as in tune to ideas of white supremacy as we are here in America, but. I don't know. It kind of makes me question his judgment a little bit. But at the same time, you know, I guess the early 2000s was a different time. Awareness has drastically increased uh, around this stuff. You know, when I first heard this accusation, I was incredible. I I thought it was stupid. Like, I really did sort of guffaw at it. Um, And and now I can totally, totally see it. Um, So... It's it's sort of a weird transformation I've made in my own mind, or just my, the way I perceive Lord of the Rings, because um, it really is like as far as a fantasy thing. Like I don't like fantasy stuff generally speaking, but I like Lord of the Rings, and then I'm kind of like the going to these weird, you know, paranoid places in my mind. Does that mean like I secretly like a <laughs> subversive white supremacist fairy tale? You know, it's like it sort of fucks with me a little bit. No, no, because the thing is, like, and this is important for, like, leftists to realize is, like, it doesn't have to always be, like, everything you watch doesn't have to share your politics or necessarily have good politics, because what you're getting from these stories is something that I think is probably in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, whatever, is probably a little bit before politics. It is, like, these fantasies of good versus evil, you know, justice, revenge, these very human emotions that everyone feels regardless of their politics and we enjoy engaging with them in these films in these movies in these books and but sometimes the way they're presented is not always ideal uh politically maybe there's not an ideal way to tell a high fantasy story where yeah the hordes of evil are coming against the good men that it doesn't you know in some way you know reinforce or or not reinforce but track with some sort of like fascist thought of you know excising the other the important thing is is to realize that these are fantasies these are not real this is not how the real world works like that's the important thing if you can separate the two you're good just be you know be cognizant don't let uh this information seep into you you know under uh you know subtextually without you know challenging it like i i i like i love law and order i will watch i can watch hours and hours of law and order but i don't think cops are good and why and like law and order all the cops are good 
all criminals are bad and deserve to go to jail. But I love the show, even as like a committed leftist who think like the police should be abolished because it's a fantasy, because it's a story, because they take it takes place in a science fiction universe where all cops are bad and all all cops are good and all criminals uh, deserve to be punished. It's just, it's a, it's just a fantasy and you can enjoy it as a good leftist um, without it actually saying anything about your politics being flawed. I think that's really important for people. That's really what we do on struggle session. We struggle with these ideas with our politics while we enjoy uh, this, you know, media that is often very, you know, regressive uh and reactionary but you can you can do both you like you don't have to choose you don't have to live an ascetic life where you don't you know consume any media in order to be a good leftist i, I think it's important that we tell people that because i think a liberalism has you know told people um on websites like slate and vulture and this and that that if you like anything that has like a bad joke or you know a bad message in it you're a bad person and it's canceled and you're canceled and i don't think that's helpful i don't think that's good for people i think that's not the way to talk about something like friends and you know i don't think it's useful like to go back to a show from 20 years ago and list all the bad things in it and tell people they're bad for watching it i think the good thing is to i think the thing to do is to go back to that show 20 years ago and say hey this had all these messages in it but we still loved it how has society changed since then what has changed since then what would the friends look like now do uh why doesn't comedy hold up as well as other things why do you know the, the jokes um the gay panic jokes that are in every episode of friends that would be unimaginable in most tv shows now why did that change occur so ra uh, rapidly it's a, we have to have a nuanced conversation about these things instead of just pretending that we can just throw away all the bad culture that is often the most popular culture that everybody loves yeah i i think it's really important to make these distinctions. Um, and I mean, and there's an argument to be made that a lot of performers, entertainers, even today, you know, their work, um, sort of their political views, bad political views are central to their work. Um, and in some cases not, it's, it's, you can, you know, or even their bad behavior, you can separate it from their work. Um, but I think it's like an, on a case by case basis and yes, but I don't want to get too sidetracked on on the idea of canceling H.P. Lovecraft or various, you know, people who held abhorrent views, I want I want to get back to sort of just H.P. Lovecraft in general and and why you know his work has such stain power. It's not just because you know there's no copyright holder uh, that his stuff is being constantly adapted and retold and referenced in culture. It's because there's something really powerful about about his work and um like tell me tell me why you you love him so much and what's so powerful for you um about about his writings well uh well kind of the first thing i appreciate about him that he has a he has a literary pretensions he thinks he he doesn't 
even though he was writing for pulp magazines, his way of writing was very much of, you know, this kind of um, stoic um, way of writing, like massive sentences, big paragraphs, you know, really uh, a, a style of writing that I feel, you know, like we don't see uh, today anymore, like at all, even from like the literary, literary uh, writers, like I think Lovecraft could write circles around a lot of these guys, but he just happened to be writing about monsters and demons and, 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 and you know, phantoms and stuff. And the, I the creativity is the thing that hits you second because he's all, because he mostly wrote short stories and in every short story, he's creating some new terror that's haunting somebody. Like most of his, his protagonists are academics who are trying to, um, who are, who stumble upon just a glimpse of some secret about how the world really works, some truth about how the world really works. And they always have the option, you know, to kind of stand back and not, pull on that thread but they always pull on that thread and it usually ends up with them uh dead or insane basically they're driven they find out the truth about you know this horror that's coming this horror that's here these monsters that live in the tunnels um this dark god that's in the cosmic prison that's waking up from his slumber and is going to devour all of humanity all that stuff in every story, he has something new and creative and fun and dark and disturbing. And I just, as a horror fan, it, it doesn't get any better than H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's writing. Yeah, it's interesting who who's you know sort of known in the horror lexicon today, and and there really aren't that many writers that I can think of who who are sort of revered at the same level as H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, I think you already mentioned Stephen King and Clive Barker, but I can't really think of very many others. Yeah, that's about, that's about it. And, you know, both Clive Barker, even though, even though Clive Barker, I think he denies it. He, uh, Hellraiser is 100% a Lovecraft type story. It's somebody finding this object that opens up a portal to hell. That's very much in the vein of Lovecraft. And Stephen King, he wears his influence on his sleeve. Uh, the last chapter of Salem's Lot um, is just a short, a Lovecraftian short story that copies Lovecraft style to the T is just a copy of a Lovecraft story that Stephen King just kind of pasted on uh, to the end of the book. And like, but you see his influence in things like um, the Annihilation, the sci-fi movie from a year or two ago that people were really into. That was written by Jeff Vandermeer, who is a Lovecraft scholar. And he basically was, you know, kind of doing his own, adaptation of a Lovecraft story called The Color Out of Space. Um, and that film is getting it. That uh, story was actually made into its own film starring Nicolas Cage, which is currently showing at uh, festivals right now. Lovecraft uh, and Lovecraft is just in everywhere and everything. Like even like the old Ghostbusters cartoon had a Cthulhu episode. There's, you know, a director called Stuart Gordon who has adapted like uh, seven or eight uh, Lovecraft stories, a uh, reanimator. If you're familiar with 
horror B movies, you know what Reanimator is, and that's based on that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story. His influence is just you know everywhere. You cannot think about horror without thinking about H.P. Lovecraft because he understood the essential uh, na- the nature of horror in a post-industrial age, right? And that's the idea that you know in capitalism is just this. Uh, voracious dark god that is consuming us all it's always there behind every shadow down every alley it's always there and we can do nothing to stop it and that's why hp lovecraft his work in spite of his personal foibles and his racism has stood the test of time because he understood um, the world we live in. Uh, we, we lived in then and continue to live in today. I'd love to check out some more of his work. And by the end of this podcast, please recommend uh, some specific works of yours that you think people should check out. Oh, I would definitely say um, the color of space, Probably uh, since the movie's coming out, it's a great time to read it. And you can read any of these stories on any website, archive.org. Um, like you can go to the bookstore, buy a cheap collection. A uh, Call of Cthulhu is probably his most uh, famous story. Um, At the Mounds of Madness is the closest thing he came to writing a novel. It's more of a no- novella, and uh, that's excellent as well. And has been stolen from time and time again uh, from the thing to aliens versus predator yeah totally yeah i'm 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 interested to see an adaptation of that story at some point and i think um it almost happened but uh seemed too good to be true that they were trying to make an r-rated version of it with tom cruise or something benicio del toro was trying to do it yeah um yeah, and Stuart Gordon, I mean, what he's done is pretty ambitious. I don't really know of any other filmmaker who's tried to adapt. You know, he's really dedicated. You know, as he said, he's done something like seven or eight different H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. And for people who've seen Reanimator, probably his most famous movie, go into some of the other movies he's done that are, you know, pretty like, weird, but also H.P. Lovecraft adaptations that people might not know about. Well, there is um, From Beyond from 1986. It's probably the he made it right after Reanimator. Probably yes. the closest in style to it, but there's it's based on a Lovecraft story um, that's about this scientist who discovers that um, all around us constantly are these, you know, nefarious creatures that if you, you know... Sh- turn the light to a certain frequency you can see and he discovers this frequency and unfortunately for him uh the creatures see him back and there's also um my favorite personal favorite is from 2001 that's called dagon which is um uh this guy um ends up in this you know uh, this village full of, you know, weird, strange people who all are part of this cult that worship this uh, dark uh, sea god that's uh, rising up and have some very, very bad plans for him. If you ever played the game Resident Evil 4, the aesthetic of that game was taken from this film Dagon. Interesting. I haven't played Resident Evil 4. That's that is a great movie for anyone who hasn't uh, checked that out. 
I recommend that as well. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones of his that I've seen that are H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. Uh, Castle Freak is kind of a weird one. And Jeffrey Combs, who's in Reanimator, appears in many many of his films, including yeah, from I love Beyond. Jeffrey Combs. Uh, if you if you ever seen any Star Trek, you've seen Jeffrey Combs in a bunch of stuff. Absolutely, uh, most yeah, prominently in in the Dominion Wars seasons of uh, Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah, he was great in that. Great in that. Yeah, I've kept you on long enough here, Leslie. What do you want to leave our listeners with in regards to? Uh, anything we've talked about today i know we've covered a lot of different subjects yeah we talked about a lot of different stuff but i will say to your political listeners uh although we do not believe like the you know breitbart's do that uh politics is downstream from culture it's still worth knowing what's coming downstream from politics so that's why uh my show focuses on culture to kind of see like what are our um political masters trying to tell us uh through the tv yeah um definitely check out leslie's podcast a struggle session um it's awesome and uh and thanks for coming on again leslie hey yeah thank you so much uh when will this be when will you be putting this out probably in the next two days so probably by tomorrow at the latest oh so uh i can plug our uh tour then yeah, yeah. Feel free to yeah tell us what you have, what you guys have going on, and uh, where we can check out what you do. Yeah, so you can uh, listen to Struggle Session at patreon.com slash struggle session. Get tons of bonus episodes. And we now are, we're next week, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going on tour October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Uh, October 3rd in Milwaukee, October 4th in Cleveland. Uh, October 5th in Detroit. Uh, it'll be me and Jack uh, along with uh, Bugmane, who is a very, very interesting character. He is a cult leader, a comedian, uh, all around Rick and Tour. I like describing him as a ghost that haunts podcasts. He's going to be very weird, but our show is just going to be very fun. So we're going to give you a traditional podcasting live experience before Bug gets all weird. And you can get those tickets at uh, strugglesession.us. Well, thanks again, Leslie. Um, let's do this. Let's do this again for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Media Roots Radio. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. We just added a new $30 tier, which includes a free download code for my documentary film, A Very Heavy Agenda, and Abby's new documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Thanks very much.